marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. This drug is dangerous. You cannot play with it. It's not funny. It's not something to laugh about. Divorcery, violence, murder, suicide, and the ultimate end of the marijuana addict. Insanity. Send that message with clarity that good people don't smoke marijuana. Lady Gaga said she's addicted to it and is not harmless. This is Podgressive South. I'm Will Lockman. I host a radio show in Birmingham, Alabama. Also work in television. I'm Heather Milam, and I am the former Democratic candidate for Alabama's Secretary of State and a former newspaper owner. Each week, we're going to be discussing issues that we think matter not just to the South and Southeast, but to the entire country, and we're going to tell our point of view. From Alabama. Let's get started. Heather, today, what are we going to be talking about? Alabama's war on marijuana. Oh, that sounds scary. Light topic. (laughs) (laughs) not a new war, by the way. We've been fighting this one for a long time. We have been. We'll cover that, too, during the show. But Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and the Southern Poverty Law Center did recently release a shocking report uh, dealing with antiquated laws uh, with marijuana. And we'll get into that during the show. Yeah, I always feel like I have to say this anytime I discuss marijuana. I happen to not smoke marijuana. I have feelings on legality and ways that we could change our laws and ways that we could really reform the justice system as far as marijuana is concerned. Um, but I don't want people to think like, oh, well, that's a that's a pothead talking about that. It's just not something that I do um, because, I don't know, I tried it and I didn't like it. And sure. that's only, you know, it's just a personal thing. And neither do I. But it's worth pointing out that 10 states have legalized for recreational use and 33 states have legalized marijuana use for medicinal purposes. So what are the big things that listeners need to know about what is happening with this in other states, but primarily in Alabama? Why is this important? Well, I think, it again, it gets back to the antiquated laws and uh, the disparity, the racial disparity at how we are arresting individuals and the impact that it has on their lives. Um, and fortunately, we're going to have a guest today from Alabama Appleseed who's going to help us sort of dissect the legal components of that. But I think it's important first to kind of understand how we as a country got to where we are today with marijuana and hemp, which we'll talk a little bit about. Was it always illegal? When did it become illegal and why? In 1619, every Virginia farmer was required to farm hemp, which I find very interesting. And they were required yeah. to farm it? Yes, Well, that seems like the opposite of what's happening. (laughs) Right. Now, let's also clarify, there's a difference between hemp and marijuana. Marijuana has high levels of THC, which sort of gives you that psychedelic experience. Hemp has a very low level of THC, but you also get CBD oil from hemp. And makes great necklaces. (laughs) Well, back in 1619, they used it for clothing, and they even used it for sales of ships. It was a very uh, useful product. And so, yeah. Back in the early 1600s, every person in Virginia was required, excuse me, every Virginia farmer was required to farm hemp. I think that's really cool. It was used heavily through the Civil War until other plants like cotton proved to be a bit softer for clothing and fabrics. Fast forward into the late 1800s and marijuana was used in a number of products that were sold openly in pharmacies. So they were using it for medical purposes and it was sold openly just a little over 100 years ago. There were all kinds of crazy medical things happening at that time, which you look back on and think, well, that was ridiculous. (laughs) The doctors recommended this and that. 
bacon's not good for you. Right. <laughs> in 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed. It required a label for any over-the-counter product at that point containing cannabis or marijuana, right? Then we get into prohibition. We didn't like that as a country. But after prohibition was repealed in the early 30s, these straight-laced bureaucrats uh, started looking for another target, and they found it with marijuana. By 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act passed, essentially making the plant illegal in the United States. Uh, In 1944, a thoroughly researched report was released by the New York Academy of Medicine, which contradicted the popular belief that marijuana use induced violence uh, or led to addiction. So we start seeing that narrative injected into the political conversation. (laughs) Obviously, we paid attention to it because by the mid-50s, stricter federal laws were enacted, punishing marijuana users with a first offense punishment of minimum two to 10 years in prison and up to a $20,000 fine in the mid-1950s. Isn't that like $20 billion today? <laughs> it's exactly $20 billion. <laughs> Beep, boop, did the math on it. Yep, $20 yeah, billion. exactly. Uh, also in the 50s is where that Encyclopedia Britannica video that I shared with you came out. Marijuana, derived from the hemp plant. It inhibits and distorts the action of the brain and nervous system. It's more entertaining than that Encyclopedia Britannica guy that was like in the 80s or 90s that's on all the commercials. Remember yes. that little blonde dude? Remember me? I'm the kid that had a report to on space. Then I got the new Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, hey, everybody knows this is the greatest encyclopedia in the world. Help me get a B plus. Yeah. <laughs> this one's way better than that guy. I mean, apparently marijuana makes you want to eat glass. It's just really fascinating. Okay, so by the 1960s, recreational use was going up among upper middle class whites and new reports issued by Presidents Kennedy and Johnson found that marijuana, yet again, did not induce violence, nor did it lead to heavier drug use. And around this time, policies dealing with marijuana use started to incorporate treatment in addition to criminal penalties. But then we get to the 70s. Congress repealed most of the mandatory penalties for drug-related offenses, recognizing that the strict penalties from the 50s did nothing to curb marijuana use. That's good, right? Well, then by 1972, the bipartisan Schaefer Commission recommended marijuana be decriminalized, yet President Nixon rejected the recommendation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. However, through that decade, 11 states did pass laws to decriminalize marijuana, uh, and many other states actually lessened penalties at that point. Uh, Interesting note, in 1974, the very popular magazine High Times was founded. I saw that in the notes and wondered, is that the magazine or is that something? uh, Yeah, the magazine High Times. (laughs) the magazine. Um, But then we get to the 80s and the Reagan administration and the big war on drugs. In 1986, uh, in Reagan's second term, he signed what was called the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, instituting mandatory sentences for drug-related crimes. In conjunction with the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, these are all really big words today, uh, the new law raised federal penalties for marijuana possession and dealing, basing the penalties on the amount of drug involved. And this is really interesting. Possession of 100 marijuana plants received the same penalty as possession of 100 grams of heroin. I've always said that comparing marijuana to heroin is like comparing a cat allergy to being attacked by a tiger. (laughs) That's a fair... It's the same, right? Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, they're in the same family as far as, like, they, you know, are narcotics, but it's not even close. It's not... I, yeah... 
I know. Well, again, we're on drugs, and here we are today. But here we go. So in the late 90s, California passed Proposition 215, which allowed for the medical sale of marijuana, and that sort of ushers us into where we are today. You know, Heather, so much of the important stuff that needs to be talked about was put out in a report this past October, and it was glaring. It was put out by the Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice, and it was really shocking when it all came out. Um, we're lucky to have the executive director from Alabama Appleseed, Carla Crowder, join us for this segment. Let's go through a bit of that report and, and look at some of the shocking things that it said. I think the thing that struck me most was just how we are criminalizing these individuals who are participating in behavior that is legal in states that house upwards of 70 million Americans. I mean, it just seems so wrong. Carla, thanks for being here. Oh, happy to be here. And speaking of states, I do have to weigh in because I learned even right next door in Mississippi, small amounts of marijuana have been decriminalized. So less than an ounce, personal possession, fine only offense in Mississippi. We take that personally, by the way, in the state of Alabama, when Mississippi starts doing better than us at things. That's, <laughs> that's uh, That really hits hard. It does hit hard. It kind of hits at our ego. So some of the stats from the report that was put out, First of all, the report features stories of several people that are arrested for marijuana possession, such as Wesley Shelton of Montgomery, who spent 15 months in jail on a felony conviction for possession of $10 worth of marijuana. That None of that makes sense. Everything I just said, people are probably just like banging their head against the side of it. And as what? much as that hurt Mr. Shelton, also the cost to taxpayers, the waste of our precious public resources. Yeah, it's the truth. I mean, the amount of money that the state of Alabama and other states that have similar laws spend on incarcerating people for small amounts of marijuana, you know, and it's a problem that just keeps going around in circles as far as because then when they get out, they can't get jobs and they end up back in prison. And and it's not just incarceration. Think about every time somebody is arrested, you have a police officer involved, you have a prosecutor, you have a court clerk, you have staff within the justice system who has to manage that. So we calculated the resources for arrest for possession at $22 million a year that the state is spending. But Will, the point you make about the collateral consequences, that is what's really harmful to our citizens. I mean, kids are losing their their college scholarships. Um, Families are losing access to housing. Parents are losing jobs and not able to take care of their kids. And families are getting slapped with these fines of thousands and thousands of dollars that they have no way of paying. One of the things that was in the report is that the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences has a backlog of all of these tests, right? But they also test not only drug samples, but they analyze biological evidence from sexual assaults, homicides. They run toxicology, the toxicology units to test biological specimens. They even oversee the breath alcohol testing program. And again, one of the extensions of those collateral damages is that just in Jefferson County alone, as of August of 2018, four, almost 4,000 rape kits are sitting there unprocessed because there's such a backlog. And it's this you know, Department of Forensic Sciences, which we're asking them as a state to process an exorbitant amount of drug testing, right? They can't even get to what they need to get to, and we keep underfunding them. So what is it? Are we going to fund them with the money that they need? Or can we back off some of these laws and the requirements that they 
they have. You raise an important question about funding state services at levels needed, and that is such an uphill battle. That's why at Appleseed, we're saying, let's look at evidence. Let's look at data and address things in a smarter way. It would be great if we could throw a lot more money at a problem, but that's not always realistic in Alabama. So let's use our law enforcement resources for true public safety reasons and not just for dealing with antiquated and in some cases kind of historical prejudices about criminal behavior. Well, Mr. Shelton sat in in jail, essentially, because there was a backlog of drug testing. And I saw, too, that there was uh, someone by the name of Mr. Bailey in Montgomery County who basically asserted that within this report that if the longer they wait, these individuals who have been arrested for drug possession, and I think I saw also in the report that 92% last year, or the first quarter of 2018, 92% of arrest made from marijuana um, offenses was just simple possession, Mm -hmm. not trafficking or anything. But you have these individuals who are sitting in jail and uh, the hope, uh, this one Mr. Bailey in the report, that they will plead guilty instead of waiting it out, because many of these individuals also can't afford bail, right? Right. And it brings to a point that a fellow candidate of mine in the 2018 midterms, um, Cara McClure, who was running for public service commissioner, she said, being poor is expensive. And I think that this report from Appleseed illustrates just that. And it's interesting that you bring up the district attorney in Montgomery, Mr. Bailey, because District attorneys have such a powerful role in this issue. What we are seeing is that in some other cities, other jurisdictions, um, St. Louis, Philadelphia, recently Baltimore, district attorneys are saying, I'm not going to waste money with this anymore. They are deciding to use their prosecutorial discretion, which they use every day on all sorts of offenses. And they're saying, I'm not going to prosecute marijuana possession. It's a waste of time. And I've got all of these violent felonies that I I need to deal with. Um, So we're looking at district attorneys in certain Alabama municipalities and counties and hoping that they will look closely at our report. We will be engaging in, in law enforcement because they're a huge part of the solution. They have been elsewhere in the country, and and we really, really need their help on this issue. Looking at Huntsville, Alabama in 2016, 85% of those arrested for marijuana possession were black. Obviously, Carla, this sounds like black people smoke way more pot than white people. Uh, It could sound like, except all of the research says white people smoke marijuana at similar levels as African-Americans. Some of the history that Heather has already recounted for us documents that. What we're seeing is the over-policing of African-American communities. There are many more police officers um, in African-American communities. We know there are issues with racial profiling, um, with African-American motorists getting pulled over at much higher rates than white motorists. So it is discriminatory policing and um, the laws are bad enough, but they're also disproportionately affecting many people who already deal with disproportionate discrimination because they're people of color. This has turned into a bipartisan issue. So people across the ideological spectrum are recognizing that we're wasting money and we're hurting lives and we're disproportionately harming people of color. And the bottom line is there's no public safety reason. So um, we had a forum, about 150 people attended to talk about marijuana prohibition. And we had business people, we had law enforcement, Jefferson County's newly elected district attorney, Danny Carr was there, people from the legal community, lawmakers, and I am learning 
these conversations have been going on for a while. And also that a really interesting partner um, in supporting uh, legalization is Retirement Systems of Alabama. We had copies of their recent newsletter and RSA is saying it's time for Alabama to legalize. And these are, yeah, these are people that are in charge of large amounts of money. So these are smart folks. Yeah. And um, I think the most recent reports is that 62% of Americans support legalization of marijuana. Two out of three Americans support that. It just seems like an obvious step, uh, legalization. And then let's go back to even a more obvious step, which would be uh, legalization of medical marijuana. Who am I to tell anyone else, you know, who is sick or especially dying, how they can handle that pain? But let's go to even what's really important, which is way more obvious that are these antiquated laws that we're talking about that imprison people at an alarming rate for things that are legal in a lot of the country. And, you know, we have to do something about it. When Alabama Appleseed got all of these folks together to discuss this, people from both sides of the aisle, what was the reception? How how did people feel about what you were telling them? So we know there's a ton of interest because um, Reckon from AL.com, they streamed it live on Facebook, and 18,000 folks watched. We had about 160 in the room, and people were very supportive of some kind of reforms. I think where the difference of opinion lies is how far should Alabama go? what's next. Most of the um, momentum is behind decriminalization. So small amounts, possession only, not a misdemeanor, and certainly not a felony on second offense as it is now. There are also conversations in the state about CBD oil, which is a separate issue, and about medical marijuana, which in our view, that, that train is kind of left. If you have 10 states legalizing marijuana for recreational use, um, Alabama needs to go ahead and take that step. Like I said, there's bipartisan support. There's law enforcement who is engaged in conversations. The conversations have been going on for quite a while. And I think large number of people in the state are, are ready for change. There's no question. If people want to get involved, they can go to alabamaappleseed.org. And this is not just for people in the state of Alabama. What you guys are talking about and the points that you raise, these are things that are important for people around the country and in the states that we're talking about that still have these antiquated laws on the books. Carla Crowder, Executive Director at Alabama Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Thanks so much. Thank you. Heather, there aren't just the important stories that need to be covered. There are the non-stories that are being covered that we need to talk about. And we're going to do that each week on the show. Uh, we're talking about the, the war on Christmases, right? The non-stories. That's the exactly. Gillette commercial uh, debacle. Uh, I, you can talk about it for like 30 minutes, but not for weeks on end, which is what happens with these stories. Yeah, or gender-neutral Santa Claus. Yeah, that's not a thing. It's just because like one person somewhere <laughs> tweets that Santa Claus should be gender neutral does not mean that all liberals or everyone who's progressive thinks that Santa Claus should be gender neutral. And Lord knows it's not something you should spend your entire talk show talking about. No. And look, I mean, there are nuances out there, but those should be applied to real issues and dare we say it, facts, facts, uh, real things. All right, we're <laughs> going to talk about the facts and the real issues, but we will each week let you know what the non-story of the week is. Heather, what's your final takeaway on this whole deal? 
I think the final takeaway is that we're really affecting people's lives and many lives are being ruined uh, and robbed of opportunity in, in their future because of what we keep calling these antiquated laws. And another is how much money we're throwing at this per year. Estimated from the Appleseed Report, $22 million is used to enforce the prohibition against marijuana possession and what we could do with that money as a state, right? You could find 191 additional preschool classrooms or you could find 571 more K-12 through teachers. I would argue that that money could be best spent elsewhere. And don't get me started on the fact that if this was actually legal and could be taxed, the revenue that would be generated from that. Don't get me started, Heather. (laughs) I won't because this is the final thought. If you want to get started, you can contact us on Twitter at PodSouth, at Will Lockme, and at Heather Milam. Keep in touch with us. Let us know what you think we should be talking about, and that'll be our way to reach out to you guys. Thanks. This has been fun. Our first edition is almost over. Done and done. Oh,